Our first reading today is from Psalm 118, verses 1 and 2, and then 19 to 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Our second reading today is from Luke uh, chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. After he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing it, their clothes on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Imagine, if you can, a population that has lost faith in its national leaders. Imagine a country where political instability has become the order of the day, and those who govern cling to power using a toxic mix of deceit, bullying, and outright coercion. Imagine a country where the alternatives aren't much better. Imagine a vast crowd marching through the streets of the capital city, chanting and laughing and crying out that the way things have turned out is not the way any of them expected or wanted them to be. 
Imagine a crowd longing for an alternative, a new leader who will finally do things differently. And of course, then there are those who aren't so convinced, who watch the crowd from a distance, fearful of the power of the mob, those who want the crowds to disperse, to allow the processes of government to proceed for better or not in good order, those who are afraid of making things worse by pandering to populist opinion, who see the rule of law and due process as paramount. Welcome, of course, to first century Palestine. Some of us here this morning will find it easy to visualize the scene because we were just there, just late last year, on our Bloomsbury trip to uh, Palestine and Israel. And the geography that we saw hasn't changed all that much over the last 2,000 years. It's been built on and developed a bit, but the hills are still where the hills were. And as you retrace the steps of Jesus from Luke chapter 19, taking the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, you find that it is uphill all the way. Jericho is 258 metres below sea level. It's part of the Dead Sea Depression and forms the lowest point on the surface of the earth. Jerusalem, on the other hand, is 754 metres above sea level, giving an elevation change of just over a kilometre, all to be climbed in the first century on foot and in desert heat. A very different experience from the air-conditioned minibus driven by the amazing Stephen that we were fortunate enough to have at our disposal last year. By the time Jesus got near to Bethphage and Bethany, situated on the Mount of Olives facing Jerusalem, just the other side of the Kidron Valley, he and his disciples had already put in a couple of days of hard uphill slog. I actually tried to get Google Maps to plot a walking route from Jericho to Jerusalem, and it, it wouldn't do it. I suspect there's something in there about international boundaries that you're not supposed to walk across. So I, I, I spent some little while, and I was working out where I could plot a route from, and it's, it's about eight to nine hours walk. But isn't that interesting that you can't plot a direct walk on Google Maps from Jericho to Jerusalem, the route Jesus would have taken anyway? Then Luke tells us about this slightly strange scene where Jesus sends his disciples on ahead into uh, the local village, Bethphage or Bethany, we're not quite sure which, or indeed quite where they are. They're, they're on the Mount of Olives somewhere. Anyway, he sends the disciples on ahead of him into the village to find a young male horse that has never been ridden and uh, instructs them to bring it to him. It quickly becomes clear that this is something Jesus has been planning for a while because it seems there's some prior arrangement with the people in the village to let the disciples take their animal without you know, excessive challenge. Uh, it's like a, a code word almost. 
And so the cult is brought to Jesus. You know, what are you doing with my horse? Oh, the master needs it. Oh, fair enough then. So the cult comes off to Jesus, and the disciples throw their cloaks on it, and Jesus jumps on it, and they all set off across the Mount of Olives, making their way towards Jerusalem. And then suddenly the handful of disciples who have come up the hill for, with Jesus all the way from Jericho become what Luke describes as a multitude of disciples praising God joyfully with loud voices. Loud enough, it seems, to be heard across the valley and attract the attention of some of the Pharisees who quickly come out to see what's going on. And then, equally suddenly, and for the first time in the Gospel, Jesus gets a new title. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, people start to chant. Did you notice I used the phrase King Jesus in the opening prayer? After a whole ministry of assiduously avoiding the title king, every time anybody tries to call him king, he keeps calling himself things like the son of man or the son of God. Unexpectedly, sitting on a colt on the Mount of Olives, processing towards Jerusalem, Jesus is loudly hailed as king by his own disciples. Seems to me that this thing, this whole thing, has the air of being a massive setup. None of this is happening by accident. A suspiciously large crowd of disciples, a prearranged availability of a symbolically important horse, and a new chant which takes things to a whole new level in terms of impact. In case you're missing it, it's all starting to sound very Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Let me remind you in case you've forgotten. The book of Zechariah, I say that because I had to look it up. The book of Zechariah, one of the so-called minor prophets of the Hebrew Bible, was written sometime after the Jewish return from Babylonian exile. And it speaks tantalizingly of a hopeful future of a time when Israel's political strength would be restored, when the economic stability of its capital city would be re-established, and when its rebuilt temple would have religious superiority once again. And as part of this hope for a new world order, of a renewed political, economic, and religious ascendancy for the people of Israel, Zechariah painted a picture that profoundly shaped Jewish theology for the next 500 years, giving shape to what became known as the hope for a future Messiah. Zechariah said in chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem! Lo, your king comes to you! Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Jews of the first century knew full well that their Messiah was going to look like this. And Jesus and his disciples deliberately enact that scene almost to the letter. What on earth is going on here? Well, I think it sounds like what, in community organising terms, we would call an action. Many of you will know that Bloomsbury is an active part of the community organising network called London Citizens, 
which seeks to make our city a more just place. And one of the key lessons of community organising is that you only get the change in society that you have the power to demand. You can shout about injustice until you're blue in the face, but if you don't have enough power to persuade the powers that be to change, nothing is likely to change. And the, uh, the citizen's method, this is a methodology that comes from the United States. It's the thing Barack Obama was very involved in before he got into national politics, uh, but it long predates him. The citizen's method suggests that there are three kinds of power in the world. Financial power, political power, and people power. And if you don't have a load of money, and if you don't have politicians in your pocket, or it's not yet time to vote again, then the way to bring about greater justice in society is to organize people. So you network people together, drawing in churches and mosques and synagogues and schools and universities and community groups until you have enough people who care about injustice to begin to make a difference. And then you plan what's known as an action, a deliberate act involving people in sufficient numbers to get noticed. A bit like what Jean was just telling us about, where we're going to go to uh, march on Parliament. That is an action. Get enough people, you get noticed. Drawing attention to the injustice that you want to challenge, to put pressure on the gatekeepers of power. So another example. A business that's not paying the London living wage may suddenly one day find a large group of people outside its head office, probably the day of their AGM, visibly drawing attention to the fact that they're not treating their employees with dignity. Or a city hall somewhere might find a large group of people making a tent camp on its doorstep on the very day that they're taking decisions about affordable housing. Both of those examples are things I've personally been involved with over the last couple of years. You get the idea. And I think what we've got going on here in Luke's story of Palm Sunday is Jesus undertaking what we would today call an action. He's done his power analysis. He knows what it is that he's setting out to challenge. He's setting his face against the economic corruption of the Herodian regime, against the political domination of the Roman Empire, and against the religious compromisers of the Pharisees. Just like Zechariah before him, he has identified in his society this unholy trinity of power that is economics, politics, and religion all in each other's pockets. And he can see that each of these, which on its own has the potential to be so good, has become corrupted so that it no longer serves the people but rather controls and oppresses them. So Jesus gathers his crowd and enacts his action, deliberately modelling his entry into Jerusalem on the archetypical messianic text from the Jewish scriptures. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. 
I think Zechariah would have been proud. Sometimes, on Palm Sunday services, we emphasize the fact that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. We rush to Good Friday. We see Jesus setting his face towards the cross to sacrifice himself for the sake of humanity. That's, that's some Good Fridays. Sorry, that's some Palm Sundays. But today, on this Palm Sunday, I'd like to suggest we look at it slightly differently. This isn't Jesus going to Jerusalem to die. Although, clearly, that is a possible outcome. But rather, this is Jesus going to Jerusalem to announce his kingdom. Just as Martin Luther King, another man highly trained in community organizing in the States, just as Martin Luther King never set out to be assassinated, but nevertheless recognized that his actions were endangering his life as he spoke and acted against the oppressive powers of his day, so Jesus didn't set out to be crucified, even though his actions to call out the abuses of power were certainly making that a possibility. We who know the end of the story have to kind of take a step back sometimes and enter into the drama of the story as it unfolds, rather than jumping... I mean, we all know Good Friday's coming. We all know about the cross. We've got one there. It's, but at that point, Jesus didn't know that, and neither did the disciples. This is not a death march. This is not a dead man walking. This is Jesus symbolically embodying all the things he's been talking about over the past years of his public ministry. All the parables, all the healings, all the exorcisms have been pointing to one thing, which is that the old world of power and domination was not going to get its way forever. The old world of sin ruling people's lives was not going to last forever. Because a new world is coming into being where evil will be cast out, where corrupt power will be challenged, and where those who have been diminished will be raised up. A new world where sin is forgiven. Well, it's no wonder the crowds start to go wild. This is the thing they've been waiting for for 500 years, and it's finally happening. The timing couldn't have been more strategic. Jesus is entering Jerusalem in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy in the precise week of the great Passover celebration, which introduces a whole other layer of symbolism to Jesus' public action. The original Passover, you'll remember, was the final act of God persuading Pharaoh to release the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. After the plagues of frogs and locusts and the like, the angel of death visited the houses of the Egyptians, taking the lives of the firstborn children, but passing over the houses of the Israelites, who had marked their doorposts with the blood of a lamb. And Jesus' symbolic entry into Jerusalem is timed to coincide with the annual celebration of Israel's release from slavery. The point Jesus is making here couldn't be clearer. This is God's new exodus. It is God's great Passover. Jesus has come to bring into being in the world a new world, 
where the powers of empires like Egypt and Rome would be challenged at their very core, and where the corruptions of religious compromise and economic exploitation would be named and shamed, opening a new path to freedom for those enslaved. And so the crowd keeps shouting words from Psalm 118, verse 26. We heard that in our Old Testament reading. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Yet another highly symbolic reference from the Hebrew Bible. Psalm 118 was a traditional song sung by pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. And it's a hymn of praise to the God who defeats all his foes and establishes his kingdom. Jesus and the disciples are layering the imagery one upon another upon another. And the crowd around Jesus start chanting it, pinning yet more hopes on Jesus as the fulfillment of all the nation's deepest longings for justice and renewal and restoration. And so Jesus enters Jerusalem, taking the path from the Mount of Olives down the steep slides of the slope, through the Kidron Valley, probably past the tombs that we walked past because they're older than the time of Jesus, back up the hill on the other side to the city of David, which at that point was kind of over more to the left than it is now. And although Luke doesn't record it, I think it's not too much of a stretch to hear the crowd still singing Psalm 118 as they draw near to the city gates. Verses 19 to 20. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I spoke a few moments ago about how public actions are designed to challenge the gatekeepers of power, to bring about the possibility of change. Well, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is just such an action. And by anyone's measure, it was supremely effective. We get the initial response within our passage from Luke's Gospel, as the Pharisees who have joined the crowd tell Jesus to order his disciples to stop. But of course, Jesus is having none of it. The moment of his great public action has arrived, and nothing is going to get in its way. So he tells the Pharisees that it's useless to try and put a plug in the dam once the crack has appeared that the flood of God's new kingdom is coming, whether they like it or not. If these disciples were silent, the stones themselves would shout out, he says. And of course, so it proves to be. The revolution is coming, and nothing, nothing at all, can stop it. Those of us who know where this story is going know that not even the cross of Good Friday can stop it. Of course, as we who have heard the story before know very well, the revolution doesn't come in the way that the crowd around Jesus were expecting. There is the horror of Good Friday to get through before Easter Sunday dawns, but the tide has already turned. The dam has already cracked. The possibility of a new way of being has already been glimpsed. The good news of the inbreaking kingdom of God 
is never going to be silenced again. People are going to find release from their sins. Those who are bowed down by the powerful trinity of politics, economics and religion are going to find a way through the darkness to a life of new hope as they encounter a new trinity of faith and hope and love. The the revolution that Jesus brought to Jerusalem wasn't in the end the revolution the crowd were shouting for because Jesus doesn't take David's throne, overthrow Rome, depose Herod and send the Pharisees packing. What he did was something far more significant. The kingdom that Jesus inaugurated was not a renewed kingdom of Israel based in Jerusalem and defined by geographical limits. It was the kingdom of God, which extends to all people, in all places, and in all times. It was the universal kingdom of love, which always, in all places, and in all times, offers a persistent, unquenchable challenge to those unholy powers that seek to deny love and require people to live in fear. And so we come to ourselves, gathered here in central London, celebrating the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And I wonder what the significance of this event is for us. Where is the good news of the inbreaking kingdom of God for us in this place? Lent and Passion Tide are probably the most depressing of the seasons of the Christian year. Some of us have been echoing Jesus fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and nights by denying ourselves of something through Lent. Some of us have already fixed our sights on the cross of Good Friday. We know the desolation of Easter Saturday is coming. We know there's a journey of suffering before we get to Easter Sunday. And yet, what do we meet today? on Passion Sunday, Palm Sunday as it's sometimes called, although if you read closely there's no mention of palm branches. No branches at all in Luke's Gospel and in some of the other Gospels you just get branches from the trees. Anyway, I digress. What do we meet today here at the start of the octave of Holy Week, that quite depressing week? We meet Jesus triumphant. We meet Jesus entering the city in a fiesta of praise and acclamation as the crowds cast their cloaks before him, honouring and praising him as the king who comes to bring good news to the city. And I can't help but think sometimes that if Jesus, the week before his crucifixion, with the weight of the world on his shoulders, can enter the city and share in the joy of its citizens at his arrival, then maybe we too can find joy in the midst of the troubles of our lives. You see, another one of the lessons of community organising is that changing the world should be fun. Laughter is a powerful tool for healing hurt and diffusing tension. A smile can unlock gates that no battering will ever shift. You don't need me to tell you this morning what the problems are in our world. Death and despair, politics and power, suffering and starvation confront us every time we turn on our TVs, open a newspaper or check a news app. And Jesus knew all about the difficulties and dramas of human life. 
He knew what the Romans were doing to people. He knew that Herod had betrayed his people in exchange for money and power. He knew that the religious leaders had sold their souls in exchange for security. But that didn't stop him from entering into the triumphant joy of people at the coming of their Messiah. We often speak of the gospel of Jesus. We know that it means good news. We often say that we proclaim the good news of the coming of Jesus. But all too often we live as though the message he proclaimed was one of middle-class guilt and mild self-loathing, rather than one of triumph in the face of death and joy in the face of sorrow. There is good news to be found on Palm Sunday. There is joy to be found in following Jesus into Jerusalem. Sure, it may not turn out as we expect. I'm pretty sure that this time next week, even after we've lived through the cross and got to the resurrection, there will still be news of corrupt politicians, morally bankrupt economics and religious compromise. But this is what Jesus came to challenge. And he invites us to join him, not just in sorrow, but in moments of joy and laughter that summon into being a new world. He calls us to create with him a world where power is transformed, where oppression is challenged, where the morning of death is turned to the bright day of new life. So as we march together over the threshold of Palm Sunday to enter the sacred, powerful ground of Holy Week, as we open the gates to a future unknown and uncharted, which certainly includes suffering and death, every bit as much as it includes resurrection and new life, can I suggest that we do so with joy? Because we are following in the footsteps of the one who came to Jerusalem to enact a message of good news for all people, including us. Let us pray. Great God of all love, we bring before you the world in which we live and to which Jesus Christ came. Help us to learn to see the world the way you see it and teach us how to play our part in the coming of your kingdom of justice and righteousness. as we pray for those who are more powerful than we are, may we come to realize that all power ultimately rests with you. And as we pray for those who are less powerful than we are, may we discover your image in the least and the lost. And so we pray for your world. We remember those who are powerful those who are very sure of themselves, those who take pride in self-reliance. May they recognize their needfulness of your greater call. May they discover that all power finds its origin in your powerful love for the world. We pray for our politicians that they may govern with integrity and justice and that they will remember and represent those who are powerless and voiceless. We pray for those who take important economic decisions, 
in banks, businesses and boardrooms. May they realise that money is not the answer to the fundamental questions of human existence, however responsibly it is handled. May they take decisions motivated by care for all people and all creation, rather than in the interest of short-term gain. May they be granted a vision of your inbreaking kingdom, learning to see the world as you see it, and living in accord with your loving commands. We pray also for those who are powerless. We remember those who have no power of self-determination. We pray for the ethnically marginalised, the asylum seekers, the dispossessed and the homeless. May they find their true home in you, even as they struggle to find welcome from the arms of others. May they discover in you their true sense of their value as dearly loved creatures of God. And may they gain from that discovery permission to see themselves as you see them, rather than as others see them. May they be granted a vision of your inbreaking kingdom, learning to see the world as you see it, and living in accord with your loving commands. And we also pray for ourselves. We recognise that all too easily we turn our eyes from you and go our own way. All too easily we lose your perspective on our lives, allowing other priorities to determine our agendas. We ask that those of us who name you as Lord will be converted not just to the risen Christ, but to the church which is his body and to the world for which he died. May we live in our lives the gospel of good news for all. May we be granted a vision of your inbreaking kingdom, learning to see the world as you see it, and living in accord with your loving commands. Amen. <laughs>